You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. I'm your professor, David Kirkville, along with your doctor, Esteban. Marconi Emeritus. Yes, Emeritus from the Americas, and here we are on a great sunny day. It's night when you're listening to this on the radio. It's whatever time of day when you listen to your, the podcast. We're very excited. Go to musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter. Follow us on the Instagram, the Tavidja, the Botch book up, musicbiz101wp. Listen to the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. It's going to be great. Good. Should we give thanks, Dr. Esteban? We better. Let us give thanks for low humidity and also to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Wicked, White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, not the band, just the solo Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Or if you're a solo artist, you should go too. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And, and let's give thanks to Christine. Oi. Bay. A wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals all around the world, every continent, every ocean, every sea. Even Alaska. Yes. Oh, in Alaska, too, of course. Sure, it's a state. Help them all manage their investments and plan out for the retirement when somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine.oi. They at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil yes. for savings. I blew it again. Yes, leave that oil for savings. We should also keep in mind at all times that the University of William Patterson's music business program has been, is, and will be ranked one of the top in the United States of America by Bill Board. Board. He likes to be called William. You may call him Bill. BB. <laughs> That's right. BB Board. That's it. So Jason, I didn't even mention, so Jason Braun is with us today. He is our student co-host, and Jason is here because we have a Nashville class that didn't go to Nashville. Instead, we brought Nashville to us and on to Zoom this year. 
And so instead of going to Music Biz out in Nashville, we had our students attend webinars hosted by Music Biz and also reach out to people related to the Music Biz in Nashville. And today, Jason, who is our guest? Today we are having Larry Paragas to do an interview. But who is Larry? He is the CEO of Nine North Records and co-founder of Oath Management. And we have Larry with us right now. Larry, great to have you. Am I late? Says 3 p.m. start and I'm here at 2.59. Is that okay? Were you guys already here? No, we we want you here now. This is worked worked out swimmingly. I read in your LinkedIn, you're part of the uh, leadership, music leadership program. Yeah, Yeah, I did that. I did that several years ago, but I've kept in touch with the organization since, yeah. You know, a good friend of ours in the department, Michael Harrington. Sure. It's a small fraternity of folks, and we've made various pledges to each other. You know, we're never allowed to discuss the stuff that goes on in those meetings, and we always have to return each other's calls, and it's a scout's honor type deal. Well, Larry, uh, Jason is here, as you can see, and Jason's Yeah, man. Thanks for setting this up. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate you. Same here. And Larry and I had a good chat about a week and a half ago. Uh, We met on LinkedIn and thought this would be actually a really good forum to talk about what he's doing and what's going on in Nashville. So, Jason, why don't you begin with uh, your questions? Well, first off, I kind of wanted to ask how the food was. Doing Nashville at home for our uh, thing, the uh, the pulled pork isn't as good. <laughs> oh, it's, I mean, it's outstanding. I um, come to town and go to Edley's Barbecue sometime and it'll just yeah. rock your socks off. I don't have, I don't have uh, any ownership in it other than just to say it's good. Right. But, uh, yeah. I wasn't overly impressed with Martin's. Martin's is, Martin's is terrific too. It's, I mean, it's hard to go wrong. There's also, I will say there's, and I always list this one third or fourth because a relative owns it, but there's a place in town that's gotten kind of famous called Peg Leg Porker that is, uh, is really good too. So, yeah. Hey. You, hey. We talked uh, last week, we, we were talking about Broadway and uh, with COVID, is it, is it back open or it's not open? Or I remember you said you didn't want to go anywhere near it. It's open-ish. There, there were there were several bars last weekend, not this past weekend, but the weekend prior, that got hit with citations for having so many people inside the bar, serving at the bar, right. absolutely zero social distancing, absolutely zero masks. The one that got most of the ink was, you know, appropriately titled or inappropriately, depending on which way you look at it, Kid Rock's big honky-tonk bar on Broadway. And a lot of people were giving uh, Kid Rock a a lot of stick for it, but he just licenses the the name to the place. There's one guy that owns all five of the bars that got whacked with citations. And it was funny because, you know, I saw a lot of people complaining about it. And I just said, look, you know, you break the law, you are going to get you know, a citation that you have to pay fines. That's what big boys and girls do when they break the law. (laughs) So I'm as much for tourism as anyone. Uh, I know that, you know, next month would have been 
a huge event that the city passed on, which is CMA Music Fest. Yeah. That is a $65 million yearly revenue generator for the city. And they didn't do that on a whim. They did that based upon some modeling that they had access to that other people simply didn't in the decision-making process. And, you know, I think it's probably wise that they put it off for a year. I don't think that things are going to begin to resemble a normal until we either have, you know, and I'm not an epidemiologist, nor do I play one on your podcast, but until we have retrovirals or antivirals, I should say that uh, function as some kind of a cocktail against the virus, or there's a vaccine that actually works. Yeah. And, and until then, I just don't think the economy recovers in a fast, steep V, like so many people are predicting. It, it sure, it doesn't feel that way on my end. It doesn't feel yeah. that way in Nashville. I mean, a lot of the publishing houses and labels and things like that are open, but there are very few people who are actually there. Most people are still working from home, which is their right to do as an employee, at least it's been granted to them by their employer. I feel bad for the folks at Amazon, you know, and the U.S. Mail and people like that who are coming into contact with this junk probably, you know, by the minute and um, trying to keep themselves safe and sound in a really tough environment. Bless them. I know in New York, uh, I think Monday, they were able to open up and have people go back to offices. But people I've talked to who work at Harry Fox and ASCAP and other places, they're still working from home. They're not being forced to go into an office. Yeah, and I saw, I think I read it was, it was Google and Netflix, or maybe it was I think it was Google and Netflix that they weren't really going to open their campuses again for, for mass groupings of people until spring of 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that people are being cautious and I, I think it's smart, especially when you see, you know, 24 states of the, of the union with uh, rises in cases that are pretty steep. I mean, the truth is, is that the virus doesn't give a damn what we think about it. The virus is going to do what it's going to do, regardless of what we do, because it only has what we have multiple things to do. We have to worry about our livelihoods and our careers and our families and our children and our dogs and our cats. And the virus has one job to replicate. Mm and get more people infected. That's its only gig. So mm-hmm. until it burns itself out or we figure out a way to stop it, it's going to continue to be a societal and uh, economic problem that extends into the music industry. And I, I mean, I, I think that the, the drive-in uh, concert idea is, is a really adorable stopgap, but it certainly isn't going to generate, at least, unless you're a Garth Brooks, it's not really going to generate the kind of revenue that you'd wish from doing a full-blown tour anywhere. Yeah. And, and that's one of the problems. Garth can do it. Brad Paisley can do it. You know, the big artists can do it, even maybe the upper middle tier. But, you're, you know, there's a whole lower tier, you know, 90% of the musicians in this country aren't going to be able to draw like Garth. They're not going to have that opportunity so it's still going to be really tough for all those venues and also for all those artists. And that's really unfortunate. The 1% are the ones who are going to get all those great opportunities because Live Nation is going to want to, or AEG is going to want to push those 1% because they need to get as much revenue as they can. So you don't, you can't blame them for that. But again, it's going to be 
you know, the, the baby band, developing band, who's not signed, who doesn't have an agent, who would have played name your know, local club this weekend, who is just going to be live streaming and trying to figure out, can I get 15 people to watch me? You know, um, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know stuff. if you've been, and I'm sure you have been following the, the, uh, the note that went out from Live Nation to different managers and artists and attorneys and, Agents, and the like. Yeah. And, and I think that they just shot themselves in the head fiscally for the rest of the year. I think that there are artists and managers that are, that are quite literally going to sit back and say, ah, I'll wait till spring or summer of 21, or maybe I'll tour in late winter of 20 and only do indoors, maybe only work with AEG, you know, and, and I'm just going to blow Live Nation off completely, which which uh, they can do because they mm -hmm. have the wherewithal to do it. As far as the lower to mid-range artists, it's always been the same. I mean, you know, in medieval times, there are people who travel with you know, lutes or other stringed instruments and play for people and, and live from town to town based on donations. And mm -hmm. I guess the modern day equivalent of that is what? The Spotify tip jar or Patreon or things like that that are available for artists. So as much as things change, a lot of the, the way the economies work simply don't. Yeah. And there was never, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but there was never a guaranteed uh, revenue stream for anybody in this world let alone artists you yeah. know so it's it's um it's uh it's very frustrating and it's um and it's uh, very annoying and it makes you want to quit and if you quit the industry is not going to miss you they just won't i mean uh, you know the, the industry will go on and find other things to obsess over and you can sit back and you know, hang at the bar with your friends and you know, if i would have should have could have you know i mean that's just how it is so how is your label doing it's doing well um because we have a, we have a different model than a lot of companies do in our case, we're a services company, so we get paid to provide services to artists and to uh, labels or managers or booking agents who are looking for what it is that we do, which is, you know, our, our primary areas of competence would be uh, radio promotion and uh, social media management. And there are other people I know that the people that I work with as clients can associate with to fill in other gaps that they may have. If they need a good attorney, if they need good business management, if they need legal or not legal, but tax advice, if they need, you know, to talk to somebody who really understands publishing, uh, somebody who's a videographer, people who are great photographers. I've got all of those kinds of people. We don't. I have a pretty firm rule. I don't exchange um, kickback money with people. Uh, instead, I have a system that, that we all interconnectedly uh, prove competence to one another. And that's how people get referrals. And if people are suddenly no longer competent, I find somebody else to do it. And I would expect them to do the same with us. I was going to asked it's called a um on your bio it says that it's a virtual label when i saw that i was thinking like probably doing much better than most labels especially in these times being a mostly virtual label 
Yeah, well, part of that actually, and it's interesting that you bring it up because it's been 13 years since we came up with that moniker. Part of it was a, a necessity at the time. Uh, you may be too young to remember this, but just to give you a quick thumbnail, about 13 or 14 years ago, the governor, the then governor of New York, a guy named Elliot Spitzer, launched payola probes into all the major labels on behalf of New York State. And every one of the labels ended up settling for ridiculous amounts of money. Um, I always thought it was really funny that the company I worked for, Sony, was the one to settle first, but they didn't find anything we'd done that was wrong. Um, so why we settled, I don't understand. I Well, actually, I take that back. I think that there were some issues in what was then called the urban department of Sony, but the other divisions, pop, rock, country, et cetera, were clean. It was also when I found out that the children's division of Sony Music was the most profitable <laughs> part of the music division, which was pretty mind-blowing and depressing. Uh, but anyhow, um, when uh, Governor Spitzer did that, there was a lot of fallout after the fact. Uh, different people lost jobs or whatever. I ended up losing my job for a different reason. I had a brand new boss and we just didn't get along. So uh, one day he said, we're gonna try to figure out how to do this without you. And I said, I agree. <laughs> and I went my way and started my own company. But I used the term virtual label uh, because I didn't wanna, I didn't want to insinuate that we were a full-fledged label because we weren't. Um, I also didn't want to call myself an independent because that had a bad connotation at the time. Independents were the people that got that got a lot of people at major labels in trouble and were the reason for the fine in a lot of cases. And if you, by the way, just another quick side note to this, if you study the history of these probes of payola through the years, they're usually begun by someone at a major record label because the price of doing business through independence to radio has gotten so out of hand right. that they want to break it back down again so it doesn't cost anything right. and they leak some information that start to probe this one was no exception by the way same thing happened there was a guy that was a vp of promotion at epic records who was sunning on the beach uh, in Cabo, yapping away about his wonderful life and, you know, spending $2,500 with this guy to get this done and $2,500 with this guy to get that done and laying a few chairs over from him catching the same sun rays was an attorney in Elliot Spitzer's office. And so it began. So that one was actually an accident. Prior ones weren't. But anyway, to answer your question, a virtual label was kind of just a hook to give myself as something new to enter the marketplace with. But over time, it's exactly what we've become. So it's kind of funny that we became exactly that name because I swore when I started it, we were gonna have to change at some point. And we, and we never did. So we didn't have to. Were you doing physical products in the beginning? 
Uh, yeah, we, we uh, absolutely were involved in, uh, in physical product. Uh, I mean, a perfect example, you know, right from the start was when uh, we worked a song for an artist named Tracy Lawrence, who'd done about seven or eight albums for uh, Atlantic. Uh, Tracy's deal was up, and he did an independent distribution deal through a company at the time that was called A2M out of Detroit that no longer exists. This was 13 years ago, but A2M did great business physically and decent business digitally. And what was interesting was, was that after we helped Tracy get his first number one in about 11 years with a song called Find Out Who Your Friends Are, A2M sold so many copies of that album that one day, because uh, I was running an office upstairs in Tracy's building at the time when we got started, Tracy came around and we were just talking and he said that he'd made more money just off physical and digital sales of that album than he'd made from his seven prior major label albums combined. I mean, it had some big hit albums and some big hit songs. So it goes to show you, it's, it's like Radiohead when that band decided to do a pay-as-you-go thing or, or pay what you want, I guess I should say, for an album they put out around the same time frame, or maybe a few years later, called um, In Rainbows. The, the average was five bucks per head, and after they paid off their advance to Warner Chapel, which was about half of it, they were splitting the five members were a buck, sorry, 250 per album. Whereas uh, it, when they were still signed to EMI, they were splitting under a dollar an album. So the economics were completely different. And they made a fortune off that album compared to all the EMI albums that had gone before. Right. I mean, I, you know, I think that you know, to Professor, you brought up a great point about big time artists and what they're capable of. And I'm sure that you see these articles all the time too in Billboard and other places, whether it's a Beyonce release that gets dropped on a Thursday night as an iTunes exclusive or whatever. There are always these articles that follow, what can we learn as an industry from, you know, Beyonce's album drop? And the answer is absolutely nothing. <laughs> because it's not replicable. Right. Beyonce could do it. She did it. Now Ed Sheeran can't do it. He's got to go figure out something else. You know, so does Adele. So does Taylor Swift. So does everybody. That whole game has changed in the idea that everything used to be one size fits all. That business is deader than Elvis. And um, it's really up to professionals to help find audiences. And it's very much, I think, more time intensive because it's, we're living more in an era of hand-cut suits than we are stamped out, machine-tooled answers to problems. I thought I'd take a little detour off of um, tables and uh, music production and business and go uh, talk about... Um, when you did radio initially first off like um when you started radio you were 15 i was i was 14 yeah 14 yeah, yeah. what um, inspired you to uh start radio i loved it I, I loved it from when i was tiny i mean one of the first things i ever did and i know i'm i'm speaking to people of all ages here so some of you'll get it, some of you won't. I promise I'm not picking on you, Jace. I'm just telling you that 
uh, you know, you may not remember this, but there used to be these, um, there, used, there used to be this company called Radio Shack. And at this company, they sold these little things that were crystal sets and you could build your own radio to listen to. So I built a crystal set and when I was supposed to be asleep, I would actually be in my bed under the covers with a flashlight playing with this crystal set and a little, you know, wired earpiece trying to dial in stations from all over the country. So I was, you know, listening to WLS in Chicago and WOWO and St. in uh, Fort Wayne and uh, WLAC in Nashville and WAPE in Jacksonville. This would have been when I was a kid in Savannah, Georgia. And we had some great radio stations in Savannah too. And I used to win. I was a scourge, man, because I used to win all these contests all the time. But uh, the reason that I won them was because I wanted to hear myself on the radio. I didn't care. I hardly ever picked up the prizes. I just wanted to hear myself get played back. <laughs> and I loved it so much that my one day I'm in Savannah, my voice breaks and at the same time, my father has a friend at the local paper that co-owns a little tiny AM station in Savannah. And that guy had lost like five part-timers in a single day. And they all walked in and quit and he just needed cannon fodder, you know, and, and uh, that's how I started. I was cannon fodder. I got shot out of a cannon to, to do my first stuff. It was horrible. I still have a tape of it somewhere. It's like the worst radio in the world, but it sure was fun. And uh, I went on to discover that I was never going to be Howard Stern or Don Imus or anybody like that. So I was going to help other people become that. So that's when I became a program director instead and ran stations in Nashville and Sacramento and San Francisco and uh, then eventually went into the music business out of the San Francisco job. And uh, what led you to uh, switch from radio to music business? Well, I, I, there's an annual event uh, here in Nashville called Country Radio Seminar. What that is is about, um, you know, 2,000 radio and record maniacs getting together to pitch, you know, the new artists that are kind of their emphasis artists for the following year. And supposedly there are seminars during the day. And there are. They're not very well attended, though, because everybody's too drunk the night before, usually, to show up for the actual event uh, because all the business is conducted at night. Uh, everybody's out. Uh, visiting one another's events and everybody's glad handing this person to the other taking them to see one artist or another and that's where the business gets done and it was at one of these that I was on a shockingly well-attended panel with three different label heads when I was in San Francisco doing radio and every one of those label heads offered me a job to come uh, be uh, here in town um, my wife is from Memphis, so it was kind of a natural fit. We, I mean, she didn't sign up for it. I mean, the first five years of our marriage, we moved for two or three times. So it was only fair that we get ourselves closer to home for her. And then what was cool was my parents came back here and my brothers came back here and some of her family's back here now too. So here we all are. And it, it ended up working out in a really lovely, charmed way. Yeah. Larry, what do you think of the state of radio in 2020? 
I'm talking about terrestrial, not, uh, you know, not satellite, not NPR, but traditional terrestrial broadcast radio. What are your feelings about the industry and where it is and where it's going? I've got a couple of different opinions of it. One, one that I think I would be, I would be ill-served not to give is that if you are a country artist in particular, every bit of research that I've been privy to, public and private, still says, may change after this pandemic, but I doubt it. It still says 70% of the reason country music consumers do what they do, buy what they buy, et cetera, is because they heard it on the good old fashioned radio. All, every other choice that's out there adds up to the other 30%, so we don't ignore them. But we do spend the majority of our time getting music played on terrestrial radio because that's where listeners are. If you think about it, with the country music format, it's a 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. format. People are up early to get their kids off to school and get themselves off to work. They may listen during the day, and they're definitely listening again in the evening because they're taking their kids to soccer or to football practice or to volleyball or whatever, and they're running everybody around. They're listening to radio again then. So country music is very much an in-car and in-truck experience at the beginning and end of the day and an at-work and at-home experience during the actual day itself. Other formats, other than country and Christian and gospel, um, the other formats have gone through the looking glass, and it's the exact opposite. I mean, 80% of the revenue for other music formats is derived from streaming as opposed to traditional, you know, mainstream radio. I think here's the other angle on your question now. I, I think that radio blew a golden opportunity during this pandemic. They had the wherewithal and the ability to be live and local and uh, they chose not to. They chose to let more bodies go. Companies have shed anywhere from 30% to 50% of their uh, numbers of people uh, that were populating these stations and doing the work. They already weren't live and local. They were, the programming was coming in from other markets anyway, and uh, that, that has not changed. I think terrestrial radio in two words blew it. I had a great shot to become viable again and important again during a very tough time for this nation and they didn't take it. And uh, I'm afraid of what they're gonna reap as a result. Yeah, it's interesting because at first when you were stating, you know, country music, it's still 70% traditional listening, you know, from, from broadcast radio. Um, and then I started thinking about the demographic for a country which is slightly older than hip hop or-, or Yeah, 30, it's 35 to 54 year old women. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the main and country radio stations, by the way, they haven't tested man as part of their, you know, as part of their call out research or auditorium testing or Internet music testing for years. They don't care what guys think. They're just programming to women. That's it. Well, interestingly, the problem with country radio, the complaint over the number of years has been that, however, eight or nine out of 10 songs they play is, is a male artist. So I know that's started to change slowly uh, near the end of 2019, but that's, that's an interesting, I don't know if you call that a dichotomy or whatever, but they're catering to women by playing male artists. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you hit the nail on the head. If women want to know why they're not getting played on the radio, it's because the format caters to women 
by playing men. Mm-hmm. And there are some women that other women find acceptable to have in their home or in their car or whatever else. And there are others that just don't. I think that some of that is marketing muscle. A lot of it, though, is superior music making from the women who are on the radio. They use the opportunity once they've gotten their foot in the door to jam the rest of themselves through the door so they can fight in the terror dome with everybody else with superior music and superior production and superior marketing. You know, I think that that's a very difficult combination to beat. Listen, just sit and listen to all the music that's out sometime like a country programmer would. At any point, they're being worked on a hundred or more singles. And there's about one and a half to two slots a week that everybody is haggling over, trying to get in on. Okay, so if they have a 25 song playlist, you have to imagine a parking lot where 23 of the slots are already full and it could be 23 and a half. So now you're negotiating over a car and like a moped (laughs) or something for that, those last couple of slots. I mean, not to belabor the, you know, the analogy, but that's where the rubber meets the road every week. So that's why I mean, initially we talked about doing this Monday, Jason, and, and we couldn't end up doing that. Monday's the toughest day of the week for me because that's chart day. That's me on the phone all day long talking to people about what's going on and how can we get this happening. And then the rest of the day is devoted to, okay, that's what happened. Now, where are we focusing for the rest of the week to get these other things accomplished for everybody else? So, so let's talk about that. So you're representing uh, artists. You're trying to get some artists and their, their singles onto country radio. You just talked about the lack of slots available in any given week. And we won't even talk about Christmas, you know, around that time when they're just froze, playlists are frozen anyway. So mm-hmm. what, do you, what are you doing? How long is it taking? What are the steps you're taking? What, what are the tools you have to try and get into one of those one and a half parking spaces in that big lot? Well, we're, we're fashioned a little differently than some companies. We're not as expensive as some, but we're more expensive than others. And the ones that were more expensive than in particular are the people who will say, yeah, I'll work your song for a thousand dollars a month. But what they don't tell you is they're working 19 or 20 other songs. So when they call somebody up, they're just reading. I mean, it's, you're literally sitting there hearing a list read to you. What do you think of this one? Okay, thanks. What do you think of this one? Okay, thanks. What do you think of this one? Okay, thanks. It's mind numbing if you're running you know, seven or eight radio stations with four or five bodies, which a lot of people are in the position of now, that kind of use of your time is ridiculous. We don't work any more than three things at any one time, because that allows us to go in depth on those different things. And we built a reputation on the fact that we'll only do three things. We try to make those three things good enough to get their attention. So we argue based on merits. I mean, what I always stress to the team is, you know, I can pick up my cell phone or my smartphone and just read the news. You know, I don't, I don't need, I don't need people to read news to me, but I do need people who make it, you know, I need newsmakers on my staff. So everybody works all week to make the news and we use everything that's available to us. We use 
streaming numbers. We use audience numbers. We use Shazam numbers. We use M scores. We use the, the jump it took on the chart that week, the different markets that may make a, a programmer's head kind of tickle in the back, like, oh, that's a guy or a woman I really respect. You know, I should pay attention to what it is that they're hearing because I haven't heard it yet. That's what the luxury of working two or three things at a time gives you. It's the ability to drill down on more meaningful conversations than you could normally have if you're working a whole bunch of things at one time, which I think does a disservice to everybody. It's like, you know, taking a t-shirt cannon and filling it with spaghetti and shooting it at a wall. Oh, that one sticks. That's the one I'm going to go chase. That's a lousy way to do business, I think. So we don't do business that way. We, we go through and we fight and we argue uh, based on the merits. And we also do promotions with people too. I mean, if they need Facebook lives or Instagram lives or anything like that with their listeners that are exclusives, we're thrilled to do it. I mean, anything that involves the listeners and the stations is something that we will always be for. And the way that I've always viewed it, especially having come out of radio is, is that if you have a tower or if you have, you know, satellite dishes on earth or up in space, if you're transmitting via the web, uh, if you are playing something that we've provided you, you're a friend of ours. I, I treat everybody in a friendly way because what I've found over time is that the next program director in Chicago is probably not going to be the program director who was just in Atlanta. It's probably going to be somebody who was in Punxsutawney, PA or something. <laughs> you know, it's going to be it's going to be somebody who makes a gigantic leap up and if you're making friends with all of them, you have a much better chance of having quality relationships as they move up and down the ladder in their career. So that's the approach we take. I mean, there are relationships I've had now that go back 30 years, and there are new people that I meet every day of the week, too. It is never the same day twice. Interesting. How different is that from before, before you started Nine North, working with, uh, like, Sony, like, working with artists and stuff? Well, it's, I mean, it's different because, you know, when you're, when you have, when you have a Sony that you're working with, you're working with a different type of artist. You're working with an entire building full of people who are committed to one particular mission and, and you're able to command all of those resources on your behalf. So certainly that was, it was a lot of fun, but it was just as challenging in a different way because it's easy now to look back and say, well, you know, he got to work with Dixie Chicks and Miranda Lambert and Gretchen Wilson and Montgomery Gentry and life was good. But what people don't remember was we had to build them from nothing. I mean, they started as nothing, all of them. And that's no disrespect to any of them. Our A&R department and our label head saw something in them. He assigned them to us and we went to work and we help build careers that way. So what usually happens in this situation with companies like mine, and I guess I should say too, that I'm really fortunate to be vertical because there are a lot of people in this part of the industry that's horizontal as hell. And um, I'm, I'm honored to be vertical. What do you mean by that? 
What do you mean by that? Well, they, they don't have they don't have gigs anymore. They're out oh, of the okay. industry. Whatever. You actually mean alive? You're working. Yeah, yeah. they're just gone, and, and we're we're yeah. I'm I'm here, and I'm working, and I'm still making a living in this, and I'm very grateful for that. But we've had 48 different direct competitors open and close in the sector we work in just in the time we've been open, and it blows my mind sometimes that we've survived and are still here, and I'm I'm really grateful for it. I think the difference now, as opposed to then, is that then at a Sony, you had enough people in the building and enough bandwidth to take an artist from nothing to something. But if you've seen the way things are trended lately, you know, whether it's a Luke Combs or a Kane Brown or any number of other artists you could mention, most labels, with the exception, I think, of Universal Music Group, because they're still very heavily staffed, but when you look at Sony and Warner and some of the other, you'd either call them uh, major independents or you'd call them mini majors. They don't have the same number of bodies in the building as they used to back in the day to pull things off. So now they look for stories that are halfway there or even three quarters of the way there then they pick those projects up and run with them. And that's precisely what happened in the case of a Zach Brown and a Kane Brown and a uh, Lou Combs. All those guys started as independent releases and worked their way up through the system to get major label consideration. So metrics in some cases are dictating A&R choices even more than human beings. So if you go in as an artist or as a manager or as a lawyer and you see an A&R person that has, you know, three screens up and they've got all the different metrics pulled up of the artists that they're about to discuss with you, that's the universe you now live in. You're living in the era of big data with a lot of companies that you talk to. And they would love to pick up the project again when it's halfway or three quarters there because they can't build it from the beginning anymore. They just don't have that ability. The major labels you're talking about. Yes, most of them. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think again, yeah. Universal Music is an exception because they are very well staffed and uh, they've got a lot of bodies. But I think that there's a reckoning that's going to come for that too because it's getting to the point where local radio stations, many of them anyway, don't have the ability to make decisions on their own. And they have a boss somewhere that's dictating to them uh, what it is they are and aren't going to do. And the, a lot of the weekly playlists are going to come down to the relationships with that handful of men and women who are determining what those lists are. So I think that you're going to see a shakeout in promotion and marketing soon, and there are going to be less bodies there as well, because they just won't be needed. I mean, if, if you have to talk to five or six people every week to get 90% of the reporting radio stations to do something, what do you need with five bodies per label doing promotion? You just need a couple of people. You need somebody to run the effort and you need a really good assistant and that's it. I was talking to somebody who works in promotion. He's a junior person working uh, in the promotion department at a major label. I was talking to him the other day. He's one of our former students and he would love to move up. And the concern is right now he's blocked in every market. 
And as we were talking, um, the concern really is, but how long are those positions even going to be there? Because as, as what you're saying, the consolidation of uh, people in radio are making it harder. Plus, if you think about the COVID, what, what happened and with radio letting go and furloughing so many people, what's going to happen is a lot of those people they're not going to take back. I know I think Intercom today said that they're taking most people back next month, but I think in general, this will be a correction for radio and a restructure. And they're going to say, you know what? We actually did survive without all these people. We'll bring back a few of the salespeople because um, we need them on the street to try and generate some of that local advertising. But all the other people, I think we can get away with uh, not bringing them all back and having one person do the job of three or things like that. And I think it's just going to be a, a major shakedown in the structure of terrestrial radio. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. And it's, it's not just going to be terrestrial radio. It's going to be every industry. I, I think that, I think that terrestrial radio along with every industry were they they were as a group and it, it's not a it's not any kind of a conspiracy theory they were just slow rolling it they were trying to figure out how many bodies they can have to get away with delivering product that is acceptable and at the same time deliver the highest amount of revenue to themselves and to shareholders okay so every company was in the process of doing that but i think that covid-19 created a permission structure for these companies to radically overhaul in a very short period of time, the number of bodies that they could use to get away with doing the least that they could do while still quote unquote satisfying the customer. So I think you're gonna find that across many companies and they're, like you said, they're jobs that are simply not gonna return. And that's what's gonna slow down the recovery for the, for the world. You know, oh yeah, we're not just is, talking it, entertainment. It, it, we're it not just talking the U.S. Yeah, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah. It's not just yeah, it's not just the U.S. And like you know, again, these companies were slow walking it, and then this happened. And because this happened, you know, businesses are under stress. That gave them the permission to speed it up, and that's exactly what they've done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and especially if you in the in the live business. Ticketmaster, Live Nation, you know, AEG, you know, the promoters. And it's really going to bring a shakedown to uh, venues as well. You know, 90%, according to NEVA, National Independent Venue Association, they think 90% of the venues are going to go out, which is either a great opportunity for those entrepreneurs, young or small entrepreneurs who can kind of move in a little bit and become independent promoters and get some venues or it's a huge or a much larger opportunity for Live Nation to just take over more of that market. It'll be interesting to see over the next year and a half what happens. Because it's gonna a year from now, we're still going to be coming back on the live side. So, Who are you betting on? I'm betting on Live Nation and AEG. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not betting on I'm not betting on entrepreneurs. And I don't mean that I don't mean that in a mean way. It's just not the environment. Like, I mean, getting people together in big groups right now is a damn difficult thing to do unless you've got, you know, a death wish. Well, you mentioned earlier Live Nation and their, and their memo, and they're trying to pave the way for the new market for festivals and, and how it will be also in terms of guarantees. AEG, you said I'd, I'd go out and work with them. AEG is sitting back and they're, they're lows to Home Depot. They're letting 
um, Live Nation, be Home Depot, and start the market and start the conversation. And AEG can come in. And play good guy. Yeah, and, play, and be the good guy. We, we don't need to do it to that extreme, but they're still going to do something that's going to be- benefit AEG more than it would have pre-COVID. So it's going to, yeah, it's going to change. It's going to change the economies of touring forever as well. And, you know, the first artists that decide to knuckle under to the, I really think, usurious demands that, uh, that Live Nation is currently making, I think it's going to be a big mistake. You know, I, I think that people should hold fast and see what better offers come from AEG. No, it's not going to be 100% of what it was before, but it also doesn't have to be what Live Nation is asking for either. It's the answer is really something in the middle. And mm-hmm. the, first, the, the first artists, managers, lawyers, and concert company to meet in that middle will be the beneficiaries of that kind of agreement. I'm wondering about um, live stream concerts. Is that going to be like a new thing? Like if that's going to stick around after the uh, virus? Because like people are paying $10 to see their their uh, their favorite artist play on their laptop for like an hour or something like that. Kind of like renting a movie. It makes me wonder like if that's going to change anything. If maybe Live Nation or AG are going to capitalize on that idea. And if it's like going to stick around or if it's just a temporary uh, placeholder for concerts. Well, I mean, you know, what is the what is the Live Nation, um, you know, drive-in experience at, you know, big venues than, you know, the the experience of a live stream taken to a gigantic screen, you know, and being to a bunch of different places at the same time. It's the same concept, just writ large. I, I don't think, I don't think live streaming is going to go away. I don't think drive-in concerts are going to go away either anytime soon, but I don't see either of those being long-term paradigms for success as either artists or as concert companies to keep themselves afloat forever, you know, but it's good for now. It's good for now, you know, and it's something that we need. I, I would tend to think that the live stream shows are gonna hold on longer because people already have the habit of getting home and turning on screens and having experiences. I think people are a lot more comfortable doing that, as a matter of fact, than packing into theaters to see Christopher Nolan's new film. You know, I think you'll see a lot of people go. A lot of people are going to wait. They're not going to go. And they're going to wait until it's available to rent or buy. I think that's, that's the future that it looks at. But those are... When you talk about, again, we talk about Garth Brooks and Brad Paisley and a Chris Nolan film, that's the 0.5% of the top 1% of grocers in the industry. Smaller artists are still going to have to find a way to make a living. And for now, you know, I guess live streams are going to replace home concerts, you know, because everybody has been to, I'm sure, especially, you know, if you've seen pop acts, they come to people's homes and they do concerts in homes because in pop, it's either a concert in a house or it's an arena. There really isn't a lot between anymore. You know, there's not any kind of business in between for it. Country has all kinds of levels that pop and rock don't have as much anymore. 
so it's man, it's going to be it's going to be challenging. It's going to be a hell of a thing to help figure out. I think that the answers are going to come more from somebody like you, Jace, than they are from me. And I look forward to what you come up with. Yeah. Keep on like the future, like um, back to uh, Nine North. Where do you want to take the label in the future? Let's say 10, 15 years from now. What do you uh, want the label to look like long term? I want it to look retired in about 15 years. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, it'd be fun to build up an asset that I could eventually either sell or gift to somebody and then lope off into the rest of my life. Um, in the last year, I did start a management company, and I'm very happy to say that a young African-American woman that we're working with has all of a sudden gotten a lot of label interest because she put a Carrie Underwood cover out on the web and two uh, smaller country artists, Mickey Guyton, who's also a woman of color, Cassidy Pope, a woman who is not of color but is uh, a discerning talent, both retweeted her. And the next thing we knew, uh, Carrie Underwood retweeted her. And then she did a cover of Blake Shelton's God's Country and Blake Shelton retweeted her. And her, you know, video views went from the hundreds to like 40,000 overnight. You know, it was insane. And now all of a sudden we have all this interest from booking agencies and publishers and labels. So we'll see where that goes. But I, I started that company with a friend of mine. I've gotten to know this fellow over the course of a couple of years. He's worked with Creed and Alter Bridge. And I think Alter Bridge, he's especially proud of because he helped take them independent. And as an independent entity, they're making way more money than they ever made when they were signed to a label. And uh, he came to town and he's never been a big country fan. But he thought that he was going to move to town and get away with never having to work in country music, you know, which he's clearly out of his mind, but he didn't know it at the time. And um, when you're good at something, country people are going to ping you too. He's not too familiar with that world, so I'm kind of his GPS for that. And we created a partnership out of that, a company called Oath Management, O-E-T-H. This young woman, Raina Roberts, the one I'm talking about that got retweeted is one of the first acts that we're working with. We're also working with a young Hispanic woman uh, named Flo and a uh, straight up North Carolina country act named TJ Harris, who's just phenomenal. He's been in a band that actually sold a lot of music as a Christian rock entity, even though there really isn't Christian rock anymore. Everything Christian is really, Christian music is now worship music. That's what it's become. There really isn't a venue on radio for Christian rock. But he was in a band called The Cypher Down that sold a lot of records and won a Grammy and everything else. And he's trying his hand at country and doing quite well. We've just got him listed on the New Boots playlist on Spotify a couple of weeks ago, which is a crazy listen to list. So we're glad to see how those things are going. So it's kind of fun to diversify myself a bit. And I've also discovered that I probably should have done the management thing a little bit sooner because it doesn't differ much from what I do day to day already. So I probably, you know, I probably missed a few bucks falling off the table by not doing it sooner. But what the hell, you know, we live and learn. All right. That's what it is. Jason, we have time for one more question. So uh, do you have a, a final um, I think I used up all my good ones. 
I guess well, uh, you, can try, you can try a bad one. Yeah, <laughs> ask your awful question. Yeah, the only, the stupid I mean, question. Yeah, the only yeah. bad question is the one you don't ask. So right. it's okay. Go ahead and ask. Uh, well, um, I guess we could uh, talk a little bit more about oath management and just kind of like how much compared to uh, Nine North, how much do you work on that currently? Uh, well, I mean, it depends. You know, during during COVID. Um, especially during the early days of it, the first couple of months of it, Nine North was really, that was everything I was working on because Oath Management and the clients were effectively kind of on ice for a few months because the town was closed. I mean, you could you could drive down Music Row and shoot a cannon ball down it and not hit a soul. I mean, it was completely depopulated. And uh, it was weird going down there, driving through there to visit sometime. It had a, it had a feeling to it as if, you know, I were the last person in the last car on earth driving down Music Row, which was very peculiar. So recently, all of my work was Nine North, but now that uh, the country and the industry is starting to wake up a bit and an artist like Arena has so much attention there's a lot of time that's now being put into that too, because we plan to release a song uh, digitally and then we're going to release another song digitally and to radio once that's finished. And we're working on getting it, finding the right place to master it now. So that's become, you know, a larger chunk of my day as it's gone on. And believe me, it's welcome. Um, I'd, I'd rather really be overworked than, I mean, how many, how much Netflix can you watch? <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to do something with your life. Right. So I'd rather be busy. That's great. So Larry, thanks for being busy with us. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you all for the good questions. And uh, thank you for having me be a part of this. And I hope all, all right. of you have a good rest of your week and weekend. Ah, yeah, safe. you too, Larry. How, how do you say you're, how do you, is it Paragus, Paragus, Paragus? It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like Paragus, like Vegas, you know? Okay. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, gents. Stay yeah, well you. and safe. Yeah, you too. See you. All right. Take care, guys. Take care. Take care. All right, Jason, you did a good job, so thank you very much. Yeah. That was great. Dr. Stabon, you did a good job, so thank you very much. Well, thank you, too. And this was a very good radio show. Out of, out of all of the one I've done, this was the best. Yeah, see? See, of all of Jason's interviews, he's really happy with it. Part of the Nashville scene, which he is. Yeah, he knows stuff, so that was great. Yeah. So we end it, so at the end of every show, we do not say hello, because no. we are at the end, and our culture does not end with hello. Our culture ends with what sort of word, Dr. Esteban? Howdy. That's right, we end with the Nashville howdy with the big belt buckle, we say. Instead, we say adios!
Situation, you 